Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Now we're coming to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Again, page 980 in the Church Bible, 1164, if you're using the large print version. And this morning we are uh, now in our fourth uh, reflection on chapter 1, and we're going to be looking especially at verses 27 to 30. But we're going to read in from uh, the end of verse 18. Uh, The Apostle Paul is rejoicing uh, that although for different motives um, people in Rome have been preaching the gospel, encouraged uh, paradoxically by his imprisonment and by his faithfulness, and he says how he rejoices in this. Then in verse uh, 18b, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'm so glad that David spoke to the children about the fact that churches are meant to be, and by God's grace, become family. Because Philippians, 
in a little distinction from some of Paul's other letters, is really a family letter. Uh, people who distinguish different kinds of letters in the ancient world often refer to Philippians as a letter of friendship, a letter of family spirit and family encouragement and family direction. And uh, it often makes me reflect on uh, coming away from home for the first time to university when the deal was long before mobile phones and email accounts, mother writes twice to you, and in return, you write back once to mother. And mother's letters had a style that's actually, I think, reflected here in Philippians. And the style was this, here's how things are going with us at home, and then pause and the rays of the finger, and now I hope you are remembering to do your washing, not leaving all your books under the bed, studying hard, and various maternal exhortations not to let the Ferguson family name down. And this opening chapter of Philippians very much reflects that kind of spirit. Indeed, Paul uses phraseology in both sections that suggest that here are how uh, things are in my situation, and then in our section today, here is what I long to see in your life, in your situation. In verse 12, uh, this is how things are with me, and again then in verse 27, here is what I want to learn how things are about you. And what he does now in these verses, and this section really goes on right through to the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, he takes up uh, another topic in a sense. This whole section is about living the Christian life. These verses, 27 through to the end of 30, are probably the least known verses in this whole section, but they actually are the verses that headline the whole of it. Everything that follows right through chapter 2 is about how Paul's exhortation and concern here is going to work into the Philippians and work out through the Philippians, as Paul indicates uh, a number of times in chapter 2, he sees it working out in his life and working out in the lives of his friends and companions. So, what this section is about is the Christian's lifestyle. And it's not that Paul says anything in these verses that he doesn't say in other places. In fact, I think everything he says in these verses you'll find sprinkled around his letters to other churches. Things that, that makes this section distinctive is the way in which he crams it all into uh, less than a handful of verses. And for that reason, um, as he weaves different perspectives together, different dimensions of living the Christian life, uh, these verses can seem just a little dense and packed. 
But their logic is, I think, fairly simple. In verse 27, he's issuing an exhortation to them to live the Christian life faithfully. And then from the middle of verse 27 into the beginning of verse 28, he is indicating to them some of the evidences in their lives that would show that they've listened to and followed through his exhortation. And then finally, from the middle of verse 28, right through to the end, he gives them some encouragement about understanding how the Christian life works, or more exactly, how God works in the Christian life that will encourage them to listen to his exhortation and to work out the evidences of their faithfulness in their daily Christian lives. So, I want to follow through that logic, that pattern that Paul uses in these verses. First of all, his exhortation to faithfulness in living the Christian life. And you notice what his headline is. He's wanting to encourage them to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Now, clearly, he doesn't mean here, and it probably doesn't need to be said, he doesn't mean here, live in such a way that you will be worthy of the salvation that Jesus Christ will give you. He's not speaking about worthiness of merit that qualifies us for salvation. He's speaking about appropriateness of lifestyle in those who have begun to experience salvation. He works this out more fully in chapter 2 when he says, work out your salvation, the salvation God has already given to you. Let it work out in your life so that your life looks as though it has been saved by Jesus Christ. And it's such an important thing for him that salvation is not just something we understand with our minds, but the salvation of Jesus Christ actually begins to reproduce in us a likeness to Jesus Christ, a lifestyle that is appropriate to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a lifestyle that looks a little like Jesus Christ. And this, of course, for him is so important. Uh, for the Apostle Paul, the Christian life, sanctification, ultimately glorification, can be summed up in one long word. It's Christ-likeness. Where there is no Christ-likeness, there is no sanctification. These are one and the same reality. This is the whole point, Paul says in Romans 8.29, of divine predestination. What's it all about? What is He planning for us? It is that we should be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the single most important reflection of the gospel in our lives. And all that we receive from the Word of God, from the ministry of the fellowship of the family, 
from joys and sorrows is that our lives should be appropriate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, you, if you're looking at the church Bible, this may even be on your phone, but I can't guarantee that, and look down at the bottom of the page, and if you've got very focals, you'll need to look down through that exact spot that helps you to read very small print. But the language Paul uses literally could be translated only behave as citizens worthy. So he uses a verb from which uh, we get words like political, to do with the city, to do with the, the citizenry, to do with the style of life in the country. And I suspect he's probably playing on that idea because citizenship was a big deal in Philippi. Um, remember, we saw Philippi was a Roman colony. So if you were a citizen in Philippi, you, you weren't just one of the great unwashed Gentiles. You were a, you were a citizen of Rome. But it was almost as great as being from Glasgow. You know, I'm a Glaswegian or an Aberdonian. Can you get higher than that? And uh, so there's a word here that as the Philippians heard Paul urge them to a certain lifestyle, the fact that he used this language about it um, must have just alerted their attention. Um, people in those days had much better attention than we tend to have especially to words, because um, many of them in this congregation may not have been able to read, so even the sound of words meant something to them. Live as citizens in a way that's worthy of Christ. And yet Paul also later on in the, past, in the, in the, in the letter to the Philippians, he, he reminds the Philippians that they have another citizenship. They have dual citizenship. And you denounce that right at the beginning. You're, you may be citizens in Philippi, but you are citizens also of the heavenly kingdom. Don't forget that you have a more fundamental citizenship than the citizenship you have here. So I think the nuance that he's bringing out here is, dear friends in Philippi, live as citizens of Philippi who are citizens in the great Roman Empire, but live there knowing that you have another citizenship which is in heaven. And so live in Philippi as a citizen of Rome, as someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God, the city of God, the community of Jesus Christ, and live that out live that kind of citizenship out in the world in which you live. And the implication of that, as Christians, I think, have grasped all through the centuries, right from the very beginning, the implication of that is that by the power of the gospel, Christians are the best citizens in any city. Christians are the best citizens in any city. 
And throughout the ages, Christians have appealed to that principle, not assuming that they therefore will be treated kindly, but simply because it is the truth. Think of two Baptist ministers I knew who had suffered under Nikolai Ceausescu's reign in Romania. One of them, I remember, talking about the fact about how his father, who was also a Baptist minister, would come home from time to time bloodied and bruised because he'd been beaten up for being a Christian pastor. And the other telling us about the way in which they had actually written an open letter to Ceausescu saying, be careful. These are your very best citizens. Um, I think it's kind of tragic that I doubt that any of our Christian leaders in the United Kingdom would want to or maybe would be able to write to governments and say, be careful what you do with, with Christians. They are your very best citizens. That's the calling of the gospel, isn't it? Um, David mentioned Tim Keller, a part of his ministry vision was this very principle that Christians seek the good of the city. But friends, it's so important to remember that doesn't mean we will not be beaten up, whether verbally or perhaps even physically. I've always been struck by the fact that in the early days of the Christian church, Christians were known as atheists. Isn't that interesting? They were known as atheists. Why were they known as atheists? They were known as atheists because they would not bow to the ancient gods. And there is undoubtedly a parallel in that today, isn't there? Christians will not bow to the idols, the gods that are being created in our present world. We don't believe in them. We resist them. We bow only to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Nothing else in our lives lords it over us, even although we seek to be the very best citizens. And so there's a tremendous power in this exhortation that Paul is giving. And really, it's just an outworking of what he had said, isn't it? In verse 1, I'm writing to all those who are set apart, saints, in Christ Jesus. That's our fundamental citizenship, who live in Philippi, where we work out the heavenly citizenship, sometimes in a context, as Paul indicates here, for both himself and the Philippians, that is hostile to the greater and higher citizenship. A friend who is Welsh would often say to me, he was a colleague, he would often say to me, if I made a comment about something, you can take the boy out of Glasgow, but you can't take Glasgow out of the boy. So no matter where we are placed, you cannot take Christ out of us 
And this is the whole purpose of his exhortation to us, that we be faithful to who we really are in Christ Jesus. And we live as citizens here, as those who have a higher citizenship, which is in heaven. So that's his exhortation. But then in the second place, he goes on to uh, speak to the Philippians about what would be the evidence that we responded well to that exhortation. And you'll notice this is a very dense statement. It's, it's got, really got three dimensions to it. The first is standing firm in one spirit. The second is contending for the gospel. And the third is not being intimidated by our opponents. So his first exhortation is, hey, just keep standing. Um, somewhere in my teenage years, I'm reading through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I, I'm reading the great passage on Christian warfare and armor in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and I get to the bit where Paul says, and having done all, stand. And I was overcome. Now, when you're young, you can be overcome by all kinds of emotions. I was overcome by a tremendous sense of disappointment. Is that all there is? Having done everything, just keep standing. Now, fast forward many decades, and I think it's well nigh a miracle that I'm still standing. And we need to capture that nuance that Paul does not assume it's an easy thing to stand your ground. And this is a tremendous evidence, isn't it? It's, it's often the simple things, the non-spectacular things, that are the real evidences of God's persevering grace in our lives. Now, I think if you look down at the text here, um, you'll see that the Apostle Paul says something that could have actually been printed in two different ways. Standing firm in one spirit. Notice that's got a lowercase s. There are many commentators um, who suspect that quite often when our translators have a lowercase s, Paul is really referring to an uppercase s, spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you can see the, log the force of that here. Um, that if we are going to stand in one spirit, that is, stand together in one spirit, we don't have the capacity to do that in and of ourselves. Even our joint capacity, which wonderfully helps us, does not finally enable us. And he's hinting here that we are able to stand in our situation only with the help of the Holy Spirit. I think, it is, I think the most illuminating commentary Paul gives on this statement is actually in the letter that he wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, where he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So if I think I'm strong enough, I'm not going to look to the Spirit. So I don't need this exhortation. But because I'm conscious of my weakness, I recognize that I need the help of the Holy Spirit. And 
when he says the Spirit helps us there in Romans 8, 26, he uses a verb that, for all I know, he may actually have invented himself. Um, it's, um, it, it's almost like German words just put together of other pieces. And it's very picturesque. Um, perhaps the best illustration is that uh, you find yourself in a situation where you need, to, you need to lift something and you realize you can't lift it yourself. And so you get a friend to come along and, and you stand at one end and he stands at the other end. And so he who is standing over against you is lifting with you. And this is, this is Paul's idea of the Christian life. The Spirit never says, move over, sit down, shut up, do nothing, I'll do it all. No, the Spirit comes and actually enables us to live the Christian life. And this is what I think Paul is driving at here. This is what it means for us to live a life that mirrors the life of Jesus Christ, who from the womb to the tomb lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit who helped him. So, one of the evidences of our response to this exhortation to live a Christ-like life would be that we stand in the Spirit. The second would be that we contend for the gospel. Um, and this is, this is gladiatorial language, isn't it? Um, we find ourselves as Christians under attack. And Paul says we need to learn to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, by which I think he means the content of the gospel, not just for our response of faith, but for the content of the gospel. And again, this is something that he uh, elaborates on elsewhere. Remember to the, the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 5, he says, so we take every, every opposing, every thought that opposes the gospel, we take it captive. We recognize that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, and therefore our weapons are not physical weapons. We don't respond to hostility to the gospel with physical weapons, but with the weapon of the truth of the gospel that subdues every thought that is contrary to the gospel. And you see Paul doing this from time to time, how he demonstrates that, that world and life views that are contrary to the biblical world and life view cannot be self-sustaining. And so, as I often uh, think and say as Christians, when we find ourselves in, in an intellectual battle, what we're always looking for is the loose threads on the, the pullover, the sweater that the opponent of the gospel is wearing and begin to pull on them because it's not possible, if you think about it, it is not possible to live in God's world consistently 
without a foundation in God. You are living, in a sense, in cloud cuckoo land rather than the real world. If indeed this is God's world, if indeed from beginning to end the Bible bears witness to the truth, and that's a challenge to us, a tremendous challenge in our present time when much of the antagonism to the gospel has come from people who are, who are almost universally regarded as great intellectuals. Except very often you find in the academy itself they are not regarded as great intellectuals. And Paul is saying we need to stand firm in one spirit. We need to be willing to contend for the gospel. And you notice in both of these contexts, he speaks about doing this together. Doing this together. Because his concern is not just that we should be intellectually right, but that our individual lives and our family life should actually mirror the truth, the faith that we defend. And I think it's so important for us when we read Paul saying this to keep going back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 20 to 23, where he prays that we will be one in a way that is analogous to the way he is one with his Father, so that the world may believe that his Father sent him to be the Savior. In other words, what Paul is speaking about here is when not just in my individual life, but in our corporate life, and remember that most of Paul's use are usions, they're plural, where what belongs to our convictions about the faith is actually manifested in our relationships with one another so that when people come among us, um, as, as we hear from this desk over and over and over again, it becomes clear that there is a family here whose roots are heavenly and not merely earthly. And I think that background makes it clear why the third dimension of this evidence that we're responding to Paul's exhortation is that we are not frightened in anything by our opponents. We are not intimidated by opposition. And, and most opposition is intimidation, isn't it? That was the experience of the early church, intimidation. Um, rejection, persecution, almost always takes this form of intimidation. Be small because we think you are small. Bully tactics that cause panic, uh, whether they're physical bully tactics or social bully tactics, or maybe for some who are academics and students, academic bully tactics make you feel small and marginalized. Well, what is it that preserves us? What what is the divine preservative from fear? Answer, fear. 
the divine preservative from fear of man in Scripture is fear of God, isn't it? That's Jesus' teaching. Don't fear those who can kill the body. There's only one you need to fear. And when you fear him, all other fears are immediately diminished. They may not disappear, but they are definitely diminished. And Jesus is not speaking about living in terror, is he? He's speaking as one of our old, own old Scottish theologians said. He's speaking about that spirit in our hearts towards the Lord that means that we will avoid everything that might cause him to frown and seek to do anything that would cause him to smile. And that's what he's saying here. Don't be intimidated in anything by your opponents. Because in all of these contexts, by God's grace, you will be sustained by the fear of God. Remember the Egyptian midwives? You know, it'd be, it would be really fun to get two of the, two, if we have two midwives in the congregation, stand before the great power of the age and be given clear totalitarian instructions about what they are to do and let it be like water off a duck's back. How could the Egyptian midwives do that? Well, Exodus tells us, because they feared the Lord. That fear drives out all other fears. And that brings Paul to the third dimension of what he's saying here. Um, and he wants to give us some indications of what will encourage us towards faithfulness. And, and what he says is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This, that you're not frightened by them, is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, because it's been granted to you to not only believe in Christ, that's a gift, but it's also a gift. And you see, this is, this is what the opponents can never understand, that this suffering that the Christian may go through in the face of opposition is actually a gift from God. And when you experience that, he says, you are engaged in the same conflict you saw I had in Philippi, and now hear that I also have. His point is that the opposition of those who despise the gospel and demean those who trust in Jesus Christ has unintended consequences. That in his sovereign purposes, God uses that for the benediction of his people. It's an astonishing thing. But Paul has already illustrated to himself, you know, I'm stuck here in prison. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really turned out to advance the gospel. And there are these praetorian guards, crack Roman 
regiment paid apparently on a salary scale three times the ordinary Roman soldier. And uh, if the Praetorian Guard won't come to listen to me preach at the street corner, then the Lord Jesus will send me to be beside them where they cannot escape from the fact that I will speak to them about the gospel. And it is an entirely unintended consequence. It's God reversing the purposes of men in order to fulfill his own purposes and, and using, David spoke about this last Sunday night, using the very things that people mean to destroy us by. I wouldn't be surprised that Paul actually learned this principle of God's working through his experience of Stephen. First of all, that seemed to be his death was a sign of Stephen's destruction. But the way in which he died without fear, living for Christ, seeing Christ at the right hand of God, anticipating future glory, must have meant deep down in Paul's psyche he realized actually the destruction was well, it was the disintegration of his own convictions that this was not of God. And that's how it is, isn't it? That's why the Christian can become a fortitude in these situations which are, are so threatening to us because God means them for our benediction. This is, this is an indication of your salvation. And the explanation for that, it's because God is working in his sovereignty. It's been given to you. It's a grace gift to you that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. That's a perspective on suffering that people who aren't Christians can't conceivably have. And you'll notice that he adds in this lovely phrase, that it's for the sake of Christ. I don't know what age I was, pardon another personal allusion, but at some age in, in secondary school it dawned on me that what people thought and said about me as a Christian wasn't really about me at all. It was really about him. And it was such a blessing then to be able to say, Lord, this is about you and you'll deal with it. And I can stay steady. So this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful encouragement to us to live the Christian life and to know that when we go through difficult times, we're not the only ones. You're engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Calvin has a wonderful statement in his commentary on First Peter, when he says, you need to understand that from the very beginning, God has shaped the church so that death will be the way to life and the cross will be the way to victory. And when you stand back from this passage, you see that what Paul is actually speaking about here was all, first of all, 
presented in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, and to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ means that there is an imprint of his life in our lives too. And my last word is this. There is really a great key to this that Paul had already indicated in his own life earlier on in verse 21. How is it that this can be true? This can be true only, I think, when we are able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When that is true of us, friends, we are invincible, utterly invincible in this world. Where it is not true, we're always going to be vulnerable. And so this is, this is the challenge that Paul is bringing these Christians to with all the encouragements of his own modeling of the Christian life, what enables us to be fearless is to be able to say, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. As St. David earlier, I've never known a time in my life when so many people I knew and loved who were friends have been translated to glory. And as I've been thinking about them this week, these words have come back to me again and again and again. Yes, it was evident in their lives. To me, to live is Christ. And therefore to die is gain. And that's what makes all the difference to the way we live and also to the way we die. So, as I say, he doesn't say anything here that he has failed to say anywhere else, but he concentrates all for us. And it's so helpful. And it's also, isn't it, so tremendously challenging. So may this be written also over our lives as we respond to be able to say, Lord Jesus, to me, you are the whole raison d'etre of my life. Therefore, to die will be gain because it will be to see you face to face. And therefore, by your grace, with the help of your Spirit, it turns out I'm actually invincible. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank you again and again for your grace to us in Jesus Christ and for the substance of your word for its nourishment to us, for its challenge of us, for its encouragements to us, um, for the fact that it is indeed the bread of life and we are nourished by it and know that we can feed on it both today and also into the future. So we pray, enable us, each of us, as you as you parcel out your word to each of us individually as well as together to respond in grace and faith. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.